Podcast, a podcast got old school games and the modern games inspired by them. I am still DM Mike, and joined by the other halflings. And a special guest, you might have heard of him, Jolly Blackburn! <laughs> Just imagine me doing the Kermit thing. You know. <laughs> Actually, I heard he's the host of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, did Jim tell you about that? No, I, he didn't tell me that much. Oh, <laughs> well, you talk, Corbett. It's your story. Oh, I, I was just goofing around the other night with uh, everybody's been telling me about the uh, the AI computer you can log into and have it write your term papers and stuff. And I was kind of curious how good it is. And I thought it was funny. It knew you. It was like, oh, Jolly Blackbird. He's done this. He's done that. Oh, I should probably read all that off, shouldn't I? <laughs> but anyway, it's a uh, you know, Knights at the Dinner Table, Hackmaster. He's done everything. He's amazing. He's like, oh wow. <laughs> How about Jim Wampler? Nope, don't know him. <laughs> Mike, nope, don't know him. Good. I like it that <laughs> Corbett, way. Corbett, nope, don't know him. Save for half podcast. Oh, that's a podcast run by Jolly Blackburn. Oh, no. <laughs> well, if the AI says so, it must be true. It must, it be, must true. be true. You, you're, you're the head host now, Jolly. DM Jolly, right here. I think it's kind of cool because it's Jolly and his friends. That could be a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> Guys, we're Jolly's friends. <laughs> so, so here you go, man. Here are the keys to the podcast. <laughs> hey, that's one of the perks of having a unique name, I think, is uh, people remember that gets picked up by stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, but you have my sympathy trying to run herd on these guys. That's all I have to say. <laughs> but anyway, we appreciate you coming on to the show. And Thank now you. we're going to pepper you with lots of questions we haven't told you about beforehand. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> okay. We really appreciate you doing this because I happen to know that you left the annual Kenzer Company shareholders Hackmaster game in the middle right, of a right. potential TPK just to join us this evening. And right, I thank right. you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. My wife, my character's in my wife's hands right now, so I think he'll be okay. I hear I'm yelling sh- downstairs, so it sounds like it's not going really well. So it's funny. Well, maybe it's one of those where it's since it's going to be a TPK, everybody's just jockeying, jockeying to be the last to die. It's <laughs> one of those kind of things. It's what I'd do. Right, Jim, you start the question. 
I just want to thank you, Jolly, for even doing this. I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is your first podcast interview ever. No, I've done others, but I've always had Dave Kinsler with me or Brian. And I would just let them do all the talking. But it's been a couple of years. Normally, when I get a request, I turn it down or I just come up with an excuse why I can't do it. You're very persistent. <laughs> <laughs> and very grateful. Brent, you're a good friend also. I was glad to do it. Jim was aggressively pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually when I say, I don't know if I could do it, people would go away and not ask again. Jim was like, hey, if you ever change your mind. Well, I guess for first question, because this is the one we ask everybody, why don't you just tell us about how you first fell into this thing we call Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role playing to start with? We're very close to the same age, so right. Well, I guess the first I was in college at Ball State had be had be seventy six. We were sitting around the dorm room uh, playing Risk and some Avalon Hill games. It was a blizzard. Actually, it's the blizzard of uh, was it eighty two? Mm. Actually, yeah, we were snowed in. And there was one guy who was like the grandfather of the uh, dorm, like the college student had been there for like six years and was never going to graduate. He just lived there. And uh, everybody, <laughs> and he was telling us all about this game he played called Dungeons and Dragons, where it's it basically it was a, my first character story I ever heard. And we were just, our jaws were on the floor, like, wait a minute, this is a game? And it sounds like you're talking about a real event. So that was the first time I'd heard of D&D and I made a mental note. I got to play this game someday. So, you know, fast forward uh, two years and we ran into the white box set in a hobby shop and it's for 10 bucks. And me and my friend looked at each other and like, well, who's going we were broke, you know, I was like, who's going to buy it? You're going to buy it? I'm going to buy it. And he bought it. And we ended up playing after that in uh, my dad's barbershop. And we just started playing. Like first it was every night. We were playing D&D, rotating. <laughs> it was summer 1980. We played every day for the whole summer. It was just like nonstop. We were camping out in my parents' living room. We'd play till we drop and then wake up and play some more, go get some pizza, play some more. It was just insane. So that was my introduction to D&D. And uh, it was just like a love affair right from the start. I knew this is what I've been looking for, this creative outlet. Because you can draw maps, you can write, world build. It's just, it just had everything I needed to scratch those edges. So. Did you have any trouble understanding the rules since that seems to be a common? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we grew up in a, we were in a vacuum for the first year. Our, our history was we played with the white box D&D. My friend read the rules and he tried to teach it to us. And so we played one night that way and we had fun, but it was, uh, I think I've told the story about he had, he went out and bought the dice and he had a D4. And we couldn't figure out how to read the D4. And he's like, I think I figured it out. And he would pick the dice up. You know, like with three fingers, the D4, and then you pick it up and then turn it and look at it. And whatever numbers against your thumb was what you rolled. And it, we did it that way for a couple of weeks. And this was the old style D4s. They were a little different than the modern ones. But um, mm-hmm. one day we were playing and my friend Joel, who Brian is based on, was looking at the table and he, hey, look, was turning the D4 on the table and spinning it. And he's like, look, whatever numbers actually facing up on the bottom is the number. That's how we learned how to read the D4. So we were doing everything wrong, but having fun doing it. And we went right from that to the basic box set to AD&D within a a month. So we were uh, learning rules in one set and carrying them over to the other sets, you know, not realizing that the rules had changed or that things were were different now. So so we had kind of a broken game for uh, the first couple of years of playing until we started playing with other groups. 
we realized like, oh, we misinterpreted that rule. You know, this is how they're playing it. Well, I think a lot of people did that. Yeah. Import rules from one set to another and whether it was basic expert D&D or yeah. advanced or any of that. The worst story I heard about trying to figure out a D4 is a friend of mine, when they were trying to learn, they rolled the D4 and then picked it up to what flat bottom was was on the tabletop. Right. Added those numbers together and thought that was the the oh. number of damage. <laughs> wow, D4 does a lot of damage. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a magic user and get those hit points in that system. <laughs> All the fighters were going around with two daggers because it was home space. <laughs> so you could use two daggers at once. So you got guys in plate mail with two daggers running around. It's funny. I'll tell you, the eye opener for me was uh, we joined the military and I started a D&D campaign at my first duty station. I was running a group for four younger guys. The first night we were running and I was having them buy equipment and we were, they were talking to the NPCs and the uh, and really colorful uh, shopkeepers that would warn them not to go to the, oh, don't go there, you know, you're getting in trouble. And one of them was just staring at me, like, like look on his face. And I said, is there something wrong? And he's like, no, this is awesome. He's like, we always just started at the dungeon entrance and went in and, and, explored the dungeon and then you come out and that was the end of the game. They'd never played like, you know, as a story format, you know, like where you would do these things. Actually interacting with NPCs yeah. rather than just killing them. Yeah. And that was the first time I realized that everybody kind of plays the game differently based on their own mm-hmm. experience and what the DM was like. And so uh, I was kind of proud of myself because he started GMing like that way, you know, it was like a whole thing for him. Those were the days when there just weren't a lot of product out there. So you were forced yeah. to do it yourself. What few modules there were, I was uh, in college freshman when I discovered it. I couldn't, didn't have the money to buy them. I could barely afford a player's yeah. handbook. But you know, like even in Keep of the Borderland, if you look at, I had to rewrite that one for Hackmaster. I just remember being shocked. Like none of the NPCs in the Keep have names. They're just stat blocks. It's like a guy works here that blah, blah, blah. And in my mind, I was thinking these were all fleshed out, colorful characters because, you know, we lived it and we, we played it. But, you know, it was just such a bare bones thing. The GM had, I think they had more heavy lifting to do to uh, flesh things out and make it become real in people's minds. Of course, everybody has their own experience because of that. Mm-hmm. Rather than just cast a lin. Priest. You know, the, yeah, yeah. But yeah, when we first started gaming, the war game group that I first connected up with as soon as I learned how to play in the basic set and those shits. Right, right. But yeah, that's that's how I learned to DM as our DM there did that. Did the first person interactive. Yeah. The shop owner tells you this. Nah, no. He's gonna have a bad accent and yell in your face. That's that's how to do it. Right. That's a good segue, man, to a character that Jolly, you've just introduced to the strip called Asa McFarland. Oh Am I man, pronouncing okay, it right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's got his cup of chits from the old days that he likes to use for his milk. And and then yeah. like time is springy, like in comics they are. Like he's the age you and I are or close to right, it right. because of when right. we started. So he's there with all the old school rules and the, you know, fair but tough, no nonsense. He's every old designer I knew coming up that was smoking a cigarette on the dock at a convention. (laughs) Telling you about how everything, about the old days and the the old games. Uh Uh-oh. 
Yeah, so he's been a fun character. Every, I've been getting a lot of emails like, who's he based on? Who's he based on? Who's he based on? Like, really, honestly, he's not based on anyone. At least you learned from Gary Jackson and you didn't name the new character Tim Mensor or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Because there's some history there, right? Like, you thought we're both cartoonists. I, I, you thought, okay, well, I'll just base this guy on an amalgamam. But for a name, I'm going to take, like, Gary Gygax's first name as D. Exactly. Jackson's last name. And one of those two individuals had a small problem with that at some point. When we were doing the first Hackmaster, I, I thought it'd be really cool if Gary Gygax wrote the uh, introduction to the Player's Handbook and then Steve Jackson would write the introduction to the GMG. You know, and Gary was like, oh, yeah, I love Gary T. That's great. I'll do it but for 500 bucks. <laughs> we were like, oh, man, we don't know if we have that in our budget. But then I went to Steve. He was like, um, yeah, we have to talk to my lawyers. And, you know, it was, he said it a very nice way, like he's reluctant. And I said, what? what's wrong? And he's like, I love Gary Jackson. I do. So I love the strip. I love it. And he's like, you realize my middle name's Gary, right? And I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he said I, i'd feel really funny competing with a product that had my name on it you know because uh, i was like oh man that's really weird so uh, i talked to dave kins about it. that's how we came up with the idea to uh hey let's just kill the character off and that'll make everybody happy and then uh and then dave kind of almost as an afterthought said yeah in 10 years we'll bring him back <laughs> which we did <laughs> well it yeah. is comics after all yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, but at the time, 10 years, we will be lucky to even be alive in 10 years. Exactly. You never imagine a future where 25 years later, you're doing your 300th issue. Well, I took that as marching orders. And like, we, I, it was just like for 10 years, there were these little hints, little clues sprinkled out through this strip for, uh, I always thought someone's going to catch on. Someone's going to catch on. He's still alive. And uh, you know, a few people did. They would ask about it, you know, like, hey, he's, is um, Jake Berlin is that that's like Gary Jackson, right? And I'm like, no, not that name. <laughs> Can't remember the name we used for him. Oh, Jack Grayson. It was a freelancer in the strips called Jack Grayson from Belize, and someone figured it out like seven years in. Like Jack Grayson, you know, is that Gary Jackson? You know, because they, they, they um, one of the characters even said, uh, "Hey, this freelancer is good. He's Gary Jackson, good." You know, he said it right <laughs> on the panel. <laughs> well, I got to admit, there were a few years where I stopped reading the strip. Right. And then I came back. It's like, Gary Jackson is back? How did this happen? <laughs> and I had to ask Jim. <laughs> like, I'm so glad he's back. He's been he's just such a wealth of uh, story ideas that I think the comic needed needs someone like that around for the industry side. Well, see, they use the natural satanicness of Hackmaster <laughs> to create a right to bring it back from the dead. If I read the comic right, it was pretty much the Antag Antigio brothers that kept him safe, right? Yeah, they kept him safe from the mob. The whole, the whole <laughs> there is one stripper uh, that they hire a new girl at Heart Eight, and she actually comes out and says, "I thought Gary was dead. How did that he come back?" And we don't talk about that. You know, it's just. Like, <laughs> First rule of heart eight. We don't talk about Gary returning. Brian's like, I rubbed my dice on his corpse in a casket. I know he's dead. Right, right. right. I think our, I don't know if we ever put it in the strips, but but my my head cannon was uh, at his miniature uh, prop department. They made that corpse for the open coffin. It wasn't really him. You know, it's comic books. You can do you can think whatever you want. You can have a chimpanzee working in a game store. Right, smoking cigarettes and you know, driving vans. 
which I've been in some game shops in the past that I could have sworn it was a chimpanzee behind the <laughs> counter, but uh, I didn't ask. I thought it was not right to ask. So, you know. Well, jumping track slightly, how do you pronounce Shat? Is it Shadis Magazine? Shadis. Yeah. It is Shadis. Yeah. Okay. But to me, okay. a lot of people call it Shadis, and that's fine. You know. It's your magazine, so, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. You say Shadis, it's Shadis. Well, what was behind you deciding to actually start Shadis Magazine? You know, um, original inspiration, I was in the military for eight years. And you know, we, we hopped around every two years. And I, I would always start these large campaigns on whatever base I was at. You know, maybe 10, 12 players. And then you, know, you have soldiers coming and going. So during the whole time, you might have 20 people go through your campaign. Then uh, you know, the next duty station, same thing. So after a while, I had like 40, 50 friends who all played in this common world. And we would talk and write letters. And I thought, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to have a newsletter where I'd keep everybody up to date on what's going on in my campaign, even though they're not actively playing. Like maybe the characters will pop up as NPCs. So that was the first inspiration. It was just a newsletter for this campaign world where people that played in it could just, like a newspaper, they could keep up on events. And then I just slowly evolved until uh, both my wife and I wrote fiction set in this world. And we thought, well, let's just do a little magazine that uh, is an anthology of fiction in this world. And it, you know how things grow. It just, by the time oh, it yeah. came out, it was a gaming magazine with fiction in it and a little comic book in the <laughs> little comic strip in the back. I've never met anyone in this industry whose first thought wasn't, I know, I'll start publishing game stuff and then I'll get the game all the time. You know, my real thing was I always wanted to write for games, write design games. I was turning 30 at the time. I'd sold one article to um, Traveler, Journal of the Aid Society. Traveler's Aid Society? Yeah, yeah. That was my first article. It was like an I I sent it in, they accepted it. I thought, wow, you know, maybe maybe they liked it. They liked it. Maybe I can do this. But then it was like 10 years before I did something else. Yeah, so when I turned 30, that was the other incentive was, you know, I, I want to be a writer. If I'm not writing, I'm never going to do this. So um, it was something about having an artificial deadline every month. Even oh, if, yeah. Even if it was just for me, like I've got to sit down and write pages and publish form and, you know. Every and lay month. it out on like a Commodore 64 at the time. <laughs> exactly. So that, that was my dot matrix printer. <laughs> I remember telling me, telling a friend, he's like, what if nobody reads this? And I was like, you know, if I said, if five people read it, I'll be happy because someone's reading what I wrote. It was just a personal thing. I wanted to uh, push myself to do what I really love doing. Otherwise, I'm just talking about doing what I love to do. Yeah, when I've done some projects, I've asked people, okay, what's the deadline? He says, well, there's no real deadline. You know, Just get it to me when you can. I'm like, no, give me a deadline. Because if you don't, I'll butts around and no. Yeah, yep. It's like that 30 years doing this and every you know, I have a 30-day deadline cycle. And for mm-hmm. 30 years, every single issue is those last 10 to 15 days where all the work gets done. <laughs> what was that line of yours, Liz? The timeline, you know, all the work while crying. You know, it's the very last part of the timeline. <laughs> Do all the work crying. Yes. Stress is a great motivator, man. When you got it. Mm. <laughs> yep, yep. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, wait, we're, we're getting a live game report as we record. It got really loud down there. I'm, I'm, all I can think is either everybody's dying or they've just killed like a boss monster or something. They're excited. Something just died. Yeah. We're not really sure what, but yeah. I wish Barb had been able to join us because as far as the Knights at Table publication goes, she's a huge part of that. A lot of writing, a lot of, uh, does she do layout too? Yeah, she wanted to do it. At first, you know, I wasn't sure. I said, I don't know if they want us both, if they just want me. You know, we talked about it. I said, well, you'll be there if, if they need you on. But now she's in the game, so. I just thanked you the other day for a nice review of Scientific Barbarian, and you're like, oh, that wasn't me. That was Barb. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, let me go thank the right individual. Yeah, I feel bad for Barb. She does so much in the magazine each month. Like she writes a lot of the stuff in the back half. And the, she gets a lot of letters and a lot of credit. I think a lot of people don't realize how much she does. And the, plus, also just being a sounding board for the strips each month. I was reading a strip to her the other day. And as I was reading it to her, she gasped out loud because she thought it was going in a certain direction. And I was like, oh, no, it's not going in that direction. But then I was thinking, hey, it could go in that direction. So you, know, you actually changed the strip because of that. And that happens all the time, just her little interactions. Well, dude, let's do our di- our listeners up, right? Because in a Facebook chat just this past week, you tried to spoil me on some future upcoming events. So let's just spoil, and I and I wouldn't let you, but <laughs> by all means, spoil our audience. Now, well, I can give you some big news, which I, we talked about the night the shareholder meeting. For a while, you know, we've been doing monthly for 30 years, and you know, I, I don't mind doing it. It's a fun job. It's always hard. I think every issue is takes hit points away, as you know, doing any kind of writing project. But I, I was listening to a podcast, I don't know, a couple of months ago about a, it's another comic book. I don't know who it was, but they were doing monthly, just like me. And when the pandemic started, everything shut down, distributors. And he was like, well, I'm not going to do the monthly anymore for a while. So I'll just do trade backs. I'll do like trade paperbacks and write trade paperbacks. So he did that when the pandemic lifted he just stuck to that format. And he's like, I have so much room to write in. It's like, it's so much easier. You know, like he can write stories. And I, you don't have to worry about, I've only got four pages left. I've got 28 pages left. And you're more you're saying trade paperbacks, but you also mean graphic novels, that size story. Right, right, right. I've been thinking about it for a while. And I mentioned it to Dave the other day. I thought, I'm kind of thinking I'm at a point in doing this that I'd really love just to go to a quarterly format. Where it's three issues instead of one. And I'd have 96 pages to just to write, you know, do characters, not worrying about if this character arc is uh, taking up too much page count for this issue, because I've got all this other room. I can still cover the black hands. I can jump over here and do Patty. Really love that idea. So um, we kind of decided we, we are going to go that route. It's just a matter of when. Awesome. Probably sometime later this year. So it's a big move for us. It's scary. Because you know how, how our distributors are going to respond to it and, uh, Retailers, we got to convert subscriptions over. Like, how many of the quarterly issues does that translate to? So, that'll all be worked out. But so, this is the first place we've talked about that. That's a pretty good spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I expect a, a lot of comics to start going that route. Yeah, it's just paper with print costs, they, they rise like monthly now and printing costs go up. I mean, go up monthly. It's everything all at once. Now my postage went up in the middle of me shipping books just now this week. Yeah, Suddenly media mail shot up a quarter. Yeah. So we upgraded our subscription rates last year. And I, we thought, well, this will be good for a while. And it's like within three months, we're like, well, holy crap, you know, it's uh, that time again. So I think quarter will be better all around, you know, for us. Then. 
Was that the spoiler the other day? Because I thought you were just going to say uh, B.A. and Patty are going to move in together or something. Oh, okay. If you want that, that there is a story arc. It's just a matter of finding the timing where um, they get more serious. They've been serious for a while, but they're going to, um, I think B.A. might move out of his mom's house at some point. So I can't say if that's going to happen like the next few issues or um, within the next year. But it just seems like it's time for something to happen in their life. But I thought he couldn't drink, for he knew it, the water would only make him thirstier. Yeah. <laughs> right. I love that strip. <laughs> so, Sarah, <laughs> you just dove right in. What <laughs> <Swim> around? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you the big thing for me is um, whenever you make changes in a character, it just has to feel natural. Like, it's, it mm-hmm. suggests itself. Rather than, hey, I'm going to put these two together. because I Feel earned. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way I feel like those characters are leading us. So. Cool. Serialized storytelling is a, is a Rubik's Cube. I yeah. mean, you, you know it because you do it. But like in Gasoline Alley, where the characters age, no one that listens to this podcast even knows what Gasoline Alley is. What's another one? Liz, was, am I saying it right? Sally Forth? I think so, yeah. Yeah, where the characters aged in real time. Mm-hmm. KOTD doesn't do that, but... You've still got to have character growth. Most yeah. comics don't do that. Yeah. Like yeah. when I'm reading a comic, I'm constant. I, like half the time I'm like, Brian, they really need to kick his ass and then he'll grow a little. And then, and then a, a year's worth of stories later, he's back to being a Pre-art. again. <laughs> Just in a different, a new and different way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's kind of wired that way. Some certain aspects of a character, if they change too much, they're no longer the character in some way, you know. And fans can be a fickle bunch. Yeah. <laughs> they want growth, but at the same time, they still want the characters to be them. So, yeah, Especially with uh, if you have a really diverse audience. Like I'm finding now I have my original older readers, and then we have newer readers, and they, they kind of uh, have differing opinions. on. I think it came up the other day I mentioned that I've, I've dialed down on Bob fat shaming Brian over the years. Just felt like, ooh, that's kind of me, you know, Kind of past that. Yeah, that's and yeah. Then, I can't really do that anymore. Yeah, then someone else is like, "Oh no, I missed that." Like that's that's part of the character. I was like, sometimes readers don't go the way you want to go, so you just have to do what you have to do. Yeah, to an extent, I kind of understand it. Mike has a really good friend, Ben, and they'll harp on each other like nobody's business. Right. You know? I don't know what you're about. Things that you could, that you, if you said them to anyone else, they would be just totally offended. But right, the two of them, exactly. yeah, that's their friendship. And, I don't know what you're <laughs> you know, right. so I get that, but yeah, I also get that it's not really that great an example to have going forward in the comic book either. Yeah, so it's like, it just- some point it gets cringy. Like, you know, 30 years later, you're like, ooh, I wish I hadn't written that script. <laughs> you know? There's some things that we could say to each other 20 years ago or 30 yeah. years ago that we don't do now because right. that's just you don't do. Yeah, so I understand when I, I read early strips and I understand where I was at the time and what society was like. But now I'm like, wow, I would never use that phrase or uh, have a character do that today. Or I have it like in 10, 15 years so. Right. And as a historian, you know, I kind of like, yeah, we don't say that anymore. But at the same time, you shouldn't bash somebody for using that language 30, 40 years ago. Right, right. Exactly. They're still using it. Sure. (laughs) Bash them all you want. Right. I think it helps if you can admit it. Like I've admitted it in editorials. Like I I wouldn't have done this strip period today. I wish I had done that one 30 years ago. 
just because I think it was the uh, deliverance strip with. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yes. 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 Banjos. Even though they didn't overtly, they didn't outright say what happened to his character. It was implied, and they were mocking him. I thought that's pretty sad today. You know, I was like, oh man, poor Bob. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. I, I, for one, at my age, am glad that YouTube wasn't around when I was a teenager and in my 20s. God, yes. The internet wasn't around. Oh. Yeah, exactly. If I were held to stuff I did when I was 18, oh, geez. <laughs> we, well, we've touched on one of my favorite conversations to overhear and sometimes participate in is when a group of Knights at Dinner Table fans get together and start comparing your characters to their friends. Obviously, those characters are mixes and matches of some people you've known and met, but you know, readers will always do that and they will invariably go around and name their friends. It's just like Brian. This friend is just like that, but they never include themselves. And to me, that's the genius of the writing and the storytelling you do in the strip is you've really looked at people in general and (laughs) and condensed them down into this frame of tabletop role-playing because there's every personality archetype, including our own, but it's just human nature not to recognize yourself. Oh, I'm totally B.A. (laughs) <laughs> I will freely admit it. <laughs> well, for example, there's a Brian streak, streak in me. I'm there to play a magic user, and I'm there to break the adventure. <laughs> I confess my sins. Right. Although, speaking of characters and everything, was there any one person, probably not, but I'm just curious, that in, inspired Nitro? Oh, yeah, I was. At, we were at Ball State playing at the gaming club. There were, it was ran by war gamers at the time, and they, they despised all things role-playing because they were noisy. Yeah. Noisy, loud, crazy people. <laughs> we showed up with our D and D books. Like, hey, let's get in the game for the weekend, Saturday night. Couldn't find anybody, and everyone we asked was just sneer at us. You know, there's an older crowd, and finally, this one guy said, "Well, Nitro's over on a game for you." We're like, "Nitro." So uh, this guy shows up. He's got a three ring binder. It was like there's like a mix of dragon articles, his own notes. I think he had like a busted. Uh, GMG. He took out the binder and like just made his own book. So he ran a, an adventure for us, and it was just the most horrid thing ever. He had Umber Hulks going seventy five miles an hour. <laughs> Literally, the adventure started. We were standing on some planes, and so you see a dust cloud in the distance. You know, like, and we're like, oh okay, I'm looking at the dust clouds. He's like a friend who who was Brian. Who's Brian was based on was hit. he was immediately like attacked and hit. He's like, what hit me? He's like a number hog. He's running 75 miles per hour. It was literally that was literally his adventure. I remember he had a, a duck with hot dog cart, plus four hot dog cart. And we just run around. <laughs> he would hit you with his hot dog cart. It's just it was just insanity. And his name was Nitro. When it came time to create a car- crazy character, I, I picked Nitro Ferguson. And I think I told the story in an editorial about that game because uh, about five years ago I was at Origins and this guy walks up to the booth and he's like, hey, Jolly here? And I'm like, yeah, I'm Jolly. And he's like, I'm Nitro. And when he said his <laughs> name, I, I immediately recognized him as the guy from 1982 oh, running that oh game. I'm like, so sorry. <laughs> He was a pretty big guy, and I think I ran his picture in KRT actually after that happened. But he, he turned out to be super friendly. He was he was just flattered that he made the comic book and he was a character. But yeah, he was based on a real person. Was he African American? No, no, he was a white guy. 
And the thing about Nitro was, was, in my mind, he was always white when I started it. I, mean, I never picture, I never really pictured race because I don't draw that well. Anyway, I'm trying to do KRT number three, and it was the first issue, issue 30. It was the first time Nitro was ever going to appear in color. He's on a cover. And the artist um, sent it to me. He was white. But all the reader mail building up was like, hey, I think it's great that Nitro's an African-American. We're just thinking, you know what? Why not? He's, it doesn't really matter. He seems, it seems to be the, the feel people get from him. So we had the artist like, hey, you know what? Can you just change the skin tone? And that's how that started. Well, the reason we ask is we had a guy we gamed with in Tyler who looked a lot like him and was African-American. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, his name was Chris Walker. And he wasn't quite the sort of DM that would do that, but... He he would he would run you over. I mean, he was very tactical with his combats and everything. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, we saw that and it's like, oh my god, have they met Chris? I mean, <laughs> how did they know? Chris has never left Texas. What? <laughs> that's pretty cool. So yeah, we thought that was awesome. It's just another one of those characters that when you create them initially, they were just cardboard, something to put on the paper to say words. And you know, and as it went monthly and then they slowly flesh themselves out and they kind of tell you who they really are. Like Gordo was never in a wheelchair starting out. I just came time to draw legs on the guy. And I was like, it just feels weird to think of him standing, you know? And I thought, I'm going to put him in a wheelchair. So just fit his backstory. That's awesome. Like that's every author I adores. Part of their interview is like, well, I wrote these characters until they started writing themselves. Yeah. And that's (laughs) the magic of it, which which makes it so much fun. Well, Corbett, you've been quiet. Got any questions? Comments? Uh, Jolly, have you ever have you ever seen the cartoon Beanie and Cecil? Oh yeah, yeah, I loved that as a kid. Yeah, me too. I was I just had a lot of thinking about it lately, and it has nothing to do with you. I was just kind of you mentioned your wife a few times, and I was like, oh, that sounds really great. And I, one of the things I loved about Beanie and Cecil, and it always comes back to me, is like when he comes charging after uh, to to save Beanie because he's it's oh by the way for anybody who's never seen it, it's a story about a little kid and his giant sea six sea serpent named cecil <laughs> and his grandfather running around the world and having random adventures yeah. and inevitably beanie gets in trouble and cecil comes and saves him and i was like you know i think what i really like about that show is that somebody comes to save the kid and like because i always felt like the kid and i needed somebody to come save me yeah i was just wondering if you're uh, if if you have somebody you rely on it sounds like your wife is is your cecil yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've been dating. Well, we started dating when we were fifteen in high school. Ah, we went through college together, joined the army together, and uh, been together ever since. Wow. Yeah. Talk about your Valentine story. <laughs> and, and Sarah in the strip is more or less based on Barb, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was going to ask a question. Okay, I do have a question. Good, a real one. <laughs> Hackmaster came out like almost two thousand. It was just before the OGL went into effect, didn't it? Yeah, it came out before D&D 3 was announced, and probably a couple of years before the OGL. I can't remember okay, that okay. exact time. But, yeah, that kind of triggered the, uh, probably, I would presume that triggered the old school. The OSR. Corbett, you're right on it. That's an excellent question, because Hackmaster is not often credited as one of the earliest retro clones, but it kind of is. It, yeah, really is. Matter of fact, one of our first retailer posters for um, Hackmaster said, uh, Old school, oh man, what was it? Old school kicking ass or something like that. You know, a lot of retailers complained about the language, so we, we pulled that off of there. But it actually had old school you know, on the poster. We were very aware that we were sticking with the AD&D-esque model rather than 
you know, D&D 3. Yeah, we jumped on board when it first came out. I've still got my GMs cards around somewhere <laughs> for the HMGA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, was- well, I think the thing I'm interested in, and Jolly, you tell me if this is incorrect, but I believe from reading, I was reading at the time, Knights at Dinner Table, and a little bit when it was in Dragon Magazine, and they started out playing D&D in the strip. And then right. yeah. there was a decision to change the in-comic game to Hackmaster, but that was prior to it being a real game. Is that correct? Have I got that right? Yeah, what happened was um, on BA's, the front view of BA Felton, his GM screen used to say Dung and Dragons. And it was, it was just like that forever, like for six years in Shadis and when it started at Dragon. I guess one day Lorraine Williams read it. She saw it. it was like, this is what I heard was like, What's this dung and dragons nonsense? Get that <laughs> off of there, you know? So oh my it God. came down the pipe. It's like, never, ever do that again. I'm like, dude, it's been there for... <laughs> I'm just amazed she read a dragon magazine. Apparently <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it, it hit the... I didn't know what to call it. So you know, in one early strip, Dave had a Hackmaster sword. I thought, well, I'll just call this game Hackmaster. We put that on the GM screen. And that, that's how they started playing Hackmaster because uh, of the complaint from uh, whoever at TSR. Didn't like Dung and Dre- They thought we were make- making fun of the game, I guess. Because God forbid we have a sense of humor about our game. <laughs> I'm glad things have changed in the last 30 years. <laughs> oh. uh. It turned out to be a good thing. It changed. Yeah. But I was going to ask the the OGL the whole point of the, the, because there's I don't know if you know this but there's a bit of controversy going around. Oh yeah, the OGL right now. <laughs> Never but heard of you, it. You technically yeah. were in before that. Was it because it was under the parody law clause, or is it under? No. Well, well, what had happened is KOT was running in Dragon, and that when I first this was back in 1996 when they first gave me my contract, it was a boilerplate and it said that they owned all rights. And I was like, oh, not absolutely not. I can't. Now I'm going to do trade paperbacks, graphic novels someday, and maybe a website. I just wanted them to have first rights. And uh, so they changed it for me. And I think what happened, because people change over and come and go, by the time they did their D&D uh, CD archive, ah, they'd forgotten that, hey, he's not on a boilerplate. He's got a unique contract. So they showed me the CD at a convention before it came out. They flipped through it and it had... KODT in it. And I was like, oh, you know, you can't, I don't think you can have that on there because of my contract. And they said, well, we'll let them know. And then it never happened. Apparently, the, you know, the DVD came out with that on there. So basically, we got a, as a son, we got a license for AD&D to do Hackmaster. <laughs> That's how that came about. So you did it the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, who, who I guess the... they did it the hard way. But, yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, tell you what happens. You know, we did a, a list of what we wanted. You know, like a comic book, miniatures. We just thought oh, they're asking us what we wanted to make us happy and go away. And we thought, well, we'll let us have one or two of these. But when it came back, they were like, sure, you can have it all. All that. And I think what it was, they knew D and D three was coming out, and they thought, well, D and D has no value anymore. So. You know, we got the best of them on this deal. I really think that's what they were thinking. They were giving us a dead system or a dead dead license. Ho, ho, ho. Ah, silly people. <laughs> well, I guess we're getting close to time to wrap up. Does anyone have any last questions I'd like to throw at Jolly? Jolly, do you have any questions? I wonder if my character's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> a valuable question. <laughs> 
I think I have Barb's phone number here on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, we really said she was running my mage better than I was because they complained that I, I, my thoughts drift while we're playing and I'll, I'll like zone out. I'll be in the middle of something. They're like, Jolly, Jolly, do you have a spell? I'm like, huh? What? What's going on? Like, are we <laughs> fighting somebody? Or, See, that's why I tend to just play fighters. It's like, I zone yeah. out. It's like, huh? Oh, yeah, I'll hit them. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep that hitting them. That night. I, I was zoning out when uh, everybody was being attacked, and I didn't even realize it. Well, that brings me back to how thankful I am that you cut out the time for, to do this with us. Thank you very oh, much, this, this was fun. Yeah, we appreciate you giving up the the last bit of gaming because we we cut our game a little early but we still played ours this afternoon in order to it was moral project believe it or not i don't know if you've played that but years and years ago like when it was a ziploc baggy type of <laughs> book on well they actually turned it into a real with fourth edition it's more of a role-playing game so we're, we're actually doing some role-playing as it were some of us are anyway cool (laughs) (laughs) present company accepted (laughs) although it is funny they talk her into going to another village to to check on the survivors there and as soon as she's gone then they start trying to do really insane crap like she's mom or something. And then it's like, uh, she comes back and it's, oh, for God's sake, you blew <laughs> up the slavers again. <laughs> Good. Aaron's gone. Let's go out into the woods and capture <laughs> that guy who's watching the city and torture him to find out what <laughs> he's doing going. there. It's like, ah! It's like you're the paladin. Liz always plays my favorite cleric. She's like, I just healed you guys five minutes ago. Can you stay healed for like ten whole minutes? <laughs> Please. <laughs> so, well... I guess then if there's no other questions, I guess we'll let you go. Thanks again for stopping over. We appreciate you taking the time out. It was so nice having having you. Thanks for having me. Super great. Feel free to come on the show anytime. If there's any game or topic you'd like to make some comments on, we we usually cover old school games, but we occasionally cover modern games too in order to just keep our hands in and we, we aren't total old men screaming at clouds and telling kids to get off our lawns, you know. Don't want <laughs> okay. to just be that. Right, we right. might have a secret plan to leverage this interview into getting Dave on to talk, do a Hackmaster episode, maybe. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. We maybe. Got, we got big plans for Hackmaster this year. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. And we'll tell everybody thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys next episode. Say goodnight, right. everybody. Okay. Thanks, guys. Good night. Later. See ya. Rearch Master. <laughs> and we're out. Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.